the elephant, the hidden elephant in the word burnout is actually trauma, untreated trauma. It's the accumulation of untreated trauma in the central nervous system. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey y'all, I am Jamara and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. So welcome back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Augustine Colbrook, and today I am joined by a very amazing and exciting, influential uh, member of our ancillary community. Um, So um, welcome, Krista. It's so great to have you. I'm so glad you joined us. Um, instead of just reading a bio, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what do you do? Where are you in the world? And how did you get started on this path? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So my brief story is I am a licensed therapist. Uh, early in my career, almost 20 years ago now, I um, was really fortunate in that I, during my internship process, saw a lot of um, combat veterans, and really, they taught me a lot about PTSD. They were my first teachers. Um, I'm so thankful for that experience early on. Um, What ended up happening was, as I became a mom myself, I started to attract new parents into my practice, and I started to notice overlap in these PTSD symptoms that I'm seeing, because, you know, one hour I'm seeing a veteran, next hour I'm seeing a new mom with a baby, and I'm seeing more often than what I was taught to believe I would see. I'm seeing these trauma symptoms and these central nervous system symptoms coming up in new parents. And I was like, what is happening here? So that started me on the, I say like the path, the specialty that chose me, which was this intersection between trauma, birth, perinatal mental health, uh, More recently, you know, over the years, I became a certified doula, started attending births because I just really wanted to be deeper into watching it happen. And what that taught me was not only is there something very important happening with the birthing family, but also with the professionals. And so more recently, that has expanded into even understanding, you know, trauma-informed care from the bottom up. So all the way to the very top of policies that we're creating for providers and nurses, and all the way down to the birthing family themselves and the infant, just understanding this whole thing through the lens of like how trauma, both previous trauma affects it, and then like trauma in the birth experience itself and professional trauma, secondary trauma for the professionals. Um, And so the whole thing, that's kind of like my nerdy neighborhood that I hang out in is this intersection of mental health, birth, perinatal mental health. And that's my jam. That's what I do. And then that has led you into provider mental health and, and, and secondary trauma and bystander witness trauma and, and these other things that can happen in these high stress environments. I absolutely love this. And through all of this, you started a business. Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 So basically I think anybody in this field can understand the demand. I just couldn't keep up. It was like, I was turning down, you know, so many people for every one that I could accommodate and it didn't feel good to me. And so I decided, okay, let's be brave and let's do something about it. So I started Dancy Prenatal Counseling um, last, well, this year, technically at the beginning of this year, um, we have five people who I have trained to do what I do, who are working exclusively in perinatal mental health. Um, so our goal is to do therapy nationwide. We're working one state at a time. And then we currently have like nationwide and even international educational support type groups. Um, you know, just because 
it was like trying to keep up with like drinking from a fire hose, right? So it's like trying to keep up with the need. It became something that it was time to be brave and to do something really bigger. And um, and the plan with that also is we're going to expand into offering um, like acute trauma care for professionals. That's kind of a secret in the future that that's an area that we're talking about expanding into at midwifery schools and at hospitals to like offer that to staff when they have a difficult experience that they've got somebody trained in what I know how to help them right away. So yeah, I'm really and this is what I love. And I'm so excited because this is what I do currently is I take those acute calls in the middle of the night, which is my daytime, thank goodness, because I'm around the world. But um, after there's been a bad outcome, uh, investigation, a lawsuit file, a request for medical records, or a baby in the NICU on cooling or some kind of really out of the ordinary traumatic reality. Um, I get those calls from midwives and, and student midwives. And so, uh, you know, I really like you're on call still, but it's like a different. I, yeah. As I say that I've, I, you know, I was a midwife for 25 years and I still do some midwifing, but now I midwife the midwife. So it's like this real blessing to be in this new role, but like you, it is a very draining, overwhelming, intense, profound, amazing pathway where there literally isn't enough. Um, I take a lot of calls. I handle a lot of volume. I don't really know anyone else who is um, focusing on these two pieces. So one piece that I feel like is my actual zone of genius is around um, preparing the chart, uh, taking care of the nitty gritty of legally and emotionally protecting yourself in those first few hours and days. Um, but then there's the emotional fallout. And so I get a lot of that, but that's not my area of expertise. So that's why when I heard about what you were doing, I was so excited. Oh yeah. That's so beautiful because obviously I, the charting is outside of my expertise and the, and the, how to, the, the logistical how-to, that's not what I know how to yeah. do. So that's really cool to know that you do that. I would again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm busy training other people to do what I'm doing as well. Um, but, but it is one of those things where we have this intersectionality and we have to call in other providers. Like I'm oftentimes sending them to lawyers. So there's the birth um, bar rights association for birth, lawyers that specialize in birth law and then even lawyers that specialize in midwifery birth law. So we're connecting with those people and um, body workers so that these folks can get somatic clearing. And like, there's all of these levels. And so to know that you are building this army of people who will be there for the trauma counseling is amazing. I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited about it because, you know, when I first, like I said, I, I came into this from the patient angle. That was my first introduction into it. And I remember one of my births that I attended as a doula, I had this moment, it was like most things, it was a really difficult experience that I had to do some therapy myself on to get, you know, to get past in the process. But looking back on it now, it was like almost, it was the second, you know, specialty that chose me. It was the moment that I looked in the provider's face and I knew what I was looking at, which was a trauma response. Yeah. There was a certain presentation that happened in the birth and immediately the midwife's entire demeanor changed. And I knew exactly what I was looking at because I look at it all day long in my office. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. it's happening here. Oh yeah. no, because this is not a good place for this to be happening. Right. But also like, oh, such compassion. Like, oh, you, you know, I remember saying to her, I was trying to, I was trying all my tricks to like bring her back into the room and bring her back into connectedness. And one of the things I said was, um, Oh, how long have you been practicing? She says something like 25-ish years. It was a long time. She said, she said, have, um, have you, you've probably seen this presentation before. You probably, it's probably been hard for you in the past. Like, again, I'm trying my therapy tricks, right? Inviting her into dialogue so she can like process it instead of be in a triggered state. And she just looked at me just daggers and was like, yeah, you think? And it was just so like, I could just feel the pain. I could just hear the weight of the words, like beyond just that she's angry right now because she doesn't want to talk to me, but I could feel the weight of her words. And I felt like, oh my gosh. And so yeah. for a while, honestly, I'll be, you know, the lack of creativity in my own mind, I was so overwhelmed by like, I thought I was solving one problem, but the problem is so much bigger than what so I thought huge. I was solving. Because how are we going to get providers and nurses to give trauma-informed care when they are traumatized and that's not being acknowledged and that's not being supported or treated or prevented? They're not being trained about it. They don't know that it's affecting their clinical decision-making. And 
oh my gosh, how much this must be affecting their own personal lives, right? That they're carrying this around. Um, and so for a while, I just felt like, I don't even know how to talk about what I know because I feel like overwhelmed by the enormity of this. But I thankfully have gotten to speak with a lot of lovely people such as yourself and I've moved beyond that state. And now I recognize, no, we just need a trauma-informed revolution from the top to the bottom. That's it. That's just the answer. We can't say- Just that, nothing more. <laughs> yeah, nothing more. You can't say like give trauma-informed care, but like ignore that yeah. you have PTSD. Like that doesn't work. We have got to- from the very beginning education, from the very beginning preceptorships, from the very beginning residency, we've got to start showing people. And my personal, I tend towards the optimistic. I deeply, deeply know from my work, from my training, PTSD is highly treatable, highly preventable. Yes. Actually, yes. I sort of get glad when I find out that somebody doesn't have like, for instance, depression, they have PTSD because I'm like, oh, well, we know how to treat PTSD so much better than yes. depression. Actually, you're, it's yes. so treatable. And yes even more important, well, as importantly, if we catch people early, this is like what I'm always trying to just get out into the world, catch people early, you can actually change the trajectory of the formation of PTSD because there's a Absolutely. type of plasticity where your brain hasn't really decided yet. And if you catch where people- Where it's going to live. Yes, yeah, exactly. Early, literally one session will change. It will change it down to like a third of the rate of PTSD just from that- 100%. Point early on. 100% agree. And in fact, I would go even further. There are even some tricks that we can teach providers that they can do right in the moment with themselves That's right. that helps to not fit it. So there are these, all these eye movements and lifting up your head and all these somatic techniques. Absolutely. It's profound. It's really profound. But I want to go back to something else that you said that is also equally as profound is that we can't expect providers to give trauma-informed care if they themselves are in trauma. Right. That is like obvious, but profound because it's so unacknowledged. It's yes. so unacknowledged. So I've done a lot of recordings on various podcast platforms about obstetric violence. And this is kind of a fresh idea. I'm not sure that this is evidence-based or anything, but just from my knowledge and understanding of trauma, it's like um, when we think of, uh, say, domestic violence, or we think of uh downline generational abuse, you know, the, when the perpetrator is, is not healed, like, of course it can't change. Right. So the same thing is like when the provider hasn't healed their own trauma, they can't be a safe resource for the person that also might have trauma. Right. Yeah. So it, it requires compassion it requires awareness, self-awareness. It requires humility and a, and a desire to understand this, to change, to grow. Um, and right now, I mean, I would say in the medical profession specifically, there's not a lot of humility. There's not a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of willingness to abandon some of the centuries old habits of authoritarianism and patriarchy. And, um, you know, it took how long, it, how many deaths did it took until the medical system amended their residency requirements of how long people could be awake, right? Like there was this hazing philosophy and thing behind there. And so the very process of becoming a doctor or a nurse is itself traumatic because yeah. the systems are so oppressive. Yeah. So when you look at this system systemic issue you look at it from this 30,000 foot view you're looking out across and I'm we're not talking community-based birth right now we're just talking the whole maternity care system doctors nurses the hospital system um, when it when when the trauma runs that deep and we haven't even touched on like their childhood and what brought them into medicine in the first place but like just becoming doctors and nurses how how can we hope to shift this on a large enough scale that we stop having such pervasive accounts of obstetric violence and downline oppression and racism and the challenges that really exist in maternity care in the United States right now. How, how do we hope to shift this? What are your ideas? Yeah, such a good question. And that was the big question, right? That like made me say, I don't know if we can do this because it felt really big. I think there's multiple layers, right? So if we look at, I have seen on a micro level that when providers and nurses get just the education because you know I'll run classes with them just just a few hours I and mean, I don't know that everyone recognizes 
that providers and nurses are given no training in this in in anything that they're doing. It's just, it's not happening in all the hours of lectures they listen to. They're not being given any training in this. So literally I've seen on a micro level, you give them a little bit of this information. Um, it, it changes the way that person practices. The way that person practices forever changes. And when you start to think about how many patients that impacts, it gets exciting, right? Because there's exponential impact there, right? So there's this educational piece that goes directly to the providers and the nurses and the professionals across the board. And I see that that transforms things very quickly. What takes longer is we need transformation at institutional levels, right? So um, that's where I get excited about working with, again, like the at the, at the at the point of where they're getting their licensure, at the point of where they're getting their residency, their preceptorships in those spaces at the schools, right? We know that that changes the future. So that's another space where a little bit of information makes a tremendous difference. Um, we don't need providers to understand everything about trauma. Like I don't have to understand how to catch a baby, right? We can, we can specialize. They don't have to know everything to do this well. They just have to know some things, right? So it actually doesn't take very much. I also have this harebrained idea that I just love to talk about all the time, which is I don't understand. I'm going to pitch this over and over until somebody in hospital administration hears me somewhere in the universe. The cost of a trauma therapist is so cheap when you look at the data about how it improves staff retention and turnover and absenteeism. So worthwhile, pays for itself within a matter of weeks or months, depending upon the volume and the size of your staff. We have the data now, thanks to some researchers that are starting to pull up this thread to show that minimal effort here, immediately, with, when I say immediately, I mean within three to six months, changes absenteeism, changes recidivism, or excuse me, changes staff turnover, changes staff satisfaction, and that that has, I think, I'm hoping this will be researched soon, I believe we can show that it has downstream effect on patient satisfaction as well. So it really, really boggles my mind that institutions will have, for instance, like an on-staff chaplain, but they won't have an on-staff trauma therapist. Like, there needs to be a trauma therapist trained in these acute modalities that literally work within one intervention to completely change the trajectory of PTSD. They need to have a door open on the floor and just be available. And we could actually dramatically change that institution within a matter of months. So while it can feel huge, because what you're talking about, like institutional in terms of, you know, the way that they haze and, and the, I agree with you, the selection process to become a professional is in and of itself self-selecting and traumatizing. It, it creates an environment that's very unhealthy and that you're expected to not feel, to not ask, to not have needs, to not take care of yourself. Like there is an institutional change that needs to occur that is in the process of transforming. And it, but that is slow because that's decades of tradition that are having to be shifted. We're turning the Titanic, right? It's like, so that's a slow process. But what's quick is the one-to-one the -one contact. You get in touch with a provider who understands this, like the work that you do forever changes them. The next yeah. time they have a hard birth, they're gonna do it differently because of their interaction with you. And they're Absolutely. gonna coach and mentor the people around them to do it differently because of the impact you had on them. So actually, while it can feel overwhelming, this one-to-one -one transforms institutions, I've seen it. The other thing I'm excited about is because of this online education piece that's exploded, right? The accessibility, what I've been able to see is certain organizations and certain people such as yourself creating these like micro communities mm -hmm. that are not limited by geography. Mm -hmm. So in that hospital, it might be one staff person, right? But they're sprinkled throughout either the country or the mm -hmm. world, all working towards perhaps this goal of like trauma-informed care it's like you have all of these seeds planted, right? Definitely. I actually think there's exponential transformation that's happening because the, as these people who have these seeds planted grow into positions of leadership, they're able to start making budgetary decisions along these lines. They're able to start making training decisions along these lines. I'm super hopeful actually about the next time. I'm super hopeful too. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing on such a larger scale. It's really exciting. Uh, and there's tremendous growth there. And so that brings me to the segue is I just want to focus on you for a moment. What a systems level thinking brain that you have mm -hmm. and what, um, what a vision that you have created for your organization. Were you an entrepreneur before this? Does it come naturally to you? 
I, you know, that's a really fun question because I actually, um, yes and no. I think that I've always, <laughs> I have always um, been on the path of like reformation at any, any career, any job I've held, I've always like, okay, now what? Okay, now what? Okay, now what? That's been truth since youth. But moving into the CEO role from the therapist role, I've been, um, you know, I've been a supervisor, I've been a director of a nonprofit, I've been in leadership roles. So I really honestly, if I'm being truthful, I think I overestimated my like knowledge there in terms of like, oh, well, I'll just move into CEO role and it'll just be kind of like being a director. And it's not, and it's totally a steep learning curve. And I've made some huge mistakes along the way. And luckily my staff is so kind and forgiving and we're figuring it out together. Um, so I don't know that the entrepreneurship piece is actually the part that comes naturally to me. It's more of the like reformation piece of, um, yeah. I, I do think the systems level thinking does come naturally. If I could have someone else run my spreadsheets, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so I've oftentimes made the distinction. I'm also in that, in that leadership role in my organization. And, and I've oftentimes uh, really made the distinction between leadership and, and management. Those are two totally different things. And so it sounds like you kind of lean towards that leadership piece. Like I do, like, point of the spear, visionary, like initiator, like I want to go out there and create ideas. Oh, but the follow through and the spreadsheets and the, the, yeah, where's my manager? So, um, so I've got managers in place and I have this incredible team that works together with me and we all kind of build on each other's strengths. Are you, have you been able to put together a team besides your therapists who are out in the field? It takes a lot to run a business. So do you have a team that's helping you? Yeah, one of the really smart things, one of the few decisions that I think was like, I will say, good job, former me, was I hired a COO from the very beginning. And awesome. so I, she functions in that space of like direct management and helping with day to day, which allows me to, like, I like that point of the spirit, allows me to say, okay, but here's where we need to go next. Because you do awesome. need different minds on the subject, right? Like, yeah. you need, if, you, if you don't have where we're going next, you stagnate. Right. But if you're only in yeah. where we're going next, you really leave some details untied up and you really cause some disruption. That's right. You have to be able to do both. Um, and so brought her in. I actually, she's a, a dear colleague of mine that I trust a great deal. And I just said, listen, there's no pressure. This is my idea. This is what I want to do. If you say no, that's okay. I have other ideas, other things I will go do. But I'm not going to do it if you say no. Like, I don't have a backup. I know that you're the person for this this passion project in this position. Uh -huh. um, I was so fortunate that she said yes. So yeah, her name's awesome. Rebecca. And she's awesome because she takes care of that day to day and she makes sure the details don't get overlooked. And she makes awesome. sure that our, this is such an important culture that I'm trying to build. Because, okay, back to this topic, right? Like how can we ask for our staff to manage people's trauma if our staff are not also being well-supported, right? Um, there's a great problem in mental health with burnout, huge, huge problem with burnout. So I had to have somebody to make sure that they would do the important things like acknowledge the holidays, acknowledge the needs, be connected on that level and, and have follow through on that level. Right. Yeah. So that's her talent. Yeah. That's her skill. And yay. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and congratulations on finding the right people. I mean, that is one of the unspoken challenges of entrepreneurship is knowing what needs to be done is one part of it, but then finding the people to support those roles is another part. So well done you. Right. They have to have vision and they have to have that skill. And then there also has to be like a synchronicity in the way you work together. And a passion for the actual mm -hmm. subject matter and like all of it. Yeah. It comes together and when it comes together, it's like magic. And when it doesn't, it's like torture. <laughs> so oh my gosh, I've happy. experienced both and you are correct. Yes. yes. Anytime <laughs> you're an entrepreneurship, you definitely do. Or nonprofit world, that's the other place where, well, that's awesome. Well, so let's shift gears for a second because um, the majority of our listenership here at the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast uh, is midwives, midwifery students, doulas who hope to be midwives at some point, folks who are um, in the perinatal childbirth education sphere of some kind, and sometimes mamas. Um, but our main audience um, is not birthing people, it's, it's providers, or planning to be providers. Um, and so I want to just um, kind of circle back to this piece. So um, let's break it down in really simple terms. 
what are some of the physical, mental, spiritual, emotional signs that someone might be having unresolved trauma in their being? And also I've done a huge amount of trauma work in my life. And I just want to say um, that every person, if they live, they have trauma. Um, and the distinction that is really clear to me and, and Crystal, I really hope you'll weigh in here too, but the distinction for me of the difference between what I call big T and little T traumas are how it gets stored in the brain slash body. So a, a little T trauma is something like, oh yeah, that happened to me, but it actually moves on and becomes a memory. It doesn't stick up in your conscious awareness every day. It's not stuck in your amygdala. It's not busy causing you more angst. That's a little T trauma. And that is whether it's a big T or a little T trauma is absolutely determined by the person experiencing it, right? Partly resources, partly exposure, partly how you deal with it in the first 24 hours, like all these things, right? Yeah, like what it so means same, to you and all of that. Exactly. So we're going to talk about birth, but most people are more familiar with PTSD as it refers to veterans, like you also experienced. Bessel van der Kock also got his start in veteran work. And, you know, that's how many that's where it was the most profound manifestation. So that's where a lot of people saw it first. But it's helpful to think about that. Two um, soldiers could go to war and they could be in the same exact regiment and they could be in the same scenario. But one might be like, yeah, that sucked. And another might be like, I can't function. Yeah. And the difference there is what I'm calling this big T and little t trauma. And it doesn't have to necessarily do with the trauma. It has to do with how it lands on the individual and how the individual is able to process it or not. And that is a complex reality, partly having to do with your childhood and your history of resilience and your current exposure and your resources and the people around you. There's all these levels, right? So this happens in birth too. Um, there can be two midwives or a midwife and a senior student or some two, two both competent, skilled, participatory people at the same birth. And it can fall very differently. It can hit very differently. So um, the other thing is that in my own experience and in counseling others, trauma um, is sometimes bizarrely hidden from the person who's suffering. Mm -hmm. Those of us on the outside can see it but that, that person can't recognize that they're in it. So I'm wondering if you would, from your years of experience and your training, walk us through some of the very um, obvious and some of the more less obvious, the more subtle signs that there is something to work with there, specific to the birth world. Yeah, so that's a really good question. I just wanna affirm everything you said, which is starting with that two people can have the same experience and have very different outcomes. And of course, everything that goes into that is it's so nuanced and so complex that there's no formula to say this is why this person did and this is why this person did it. There's factors and variables that increase the likelihood something will be seen as traumatic, um, you know, individual characteristics, former traumas that exist, the meaning that's given to the experience. And as you said, also what happens immediately after, right? Like we talked about, there's that window of plasticity. Um, and even something as mundane as like, did you come into the experience having had enough sleep the night before? Right. Can change right. whether or not. It's or like, was the last birth you were at? Was that right, also was traumatic? The last birth you had, yeah. Are, what's the Are you working too hard so you're already in a heightened arousal state before that yeah. experience occurs? Right. Like we we function with these reservoirs that help cushion the blow of our experience, and so there's also this moving thing where on a different day the exact same person may not have had PTSD from it. Same, exact same person with exact same life experiences. So it's it's complex, but the way I like to simplify it is I like to say trauma is a function of the central nervous system, right? It's not a function of optimism or grit or faith or inner strength or any of the other things that we say. It's a, it's a central nervous system response. <clears throat> so, you know, one of the things I'll talk about when I teach to try to help make sense of what I'm going to say next is it's, it's how the memory is processed. So a normal memory so let's say that we go out for dinner and it's like to a favorite place. When that memory is fresh, you can remember all of the somatic detail and more importantly, your body remembers. So like I, if I were inclined, I could like measure and you might salivate to remember the meal. You can remember how it smells. You can remember what the server was wearing. You can remember the music, you can write all the detail. You go to sleep that night, some of the detail fades. A couple days later, more and more until a couple months later, unless something really important happened at that dinner, you're going to be hard pressed to remember it at all. And if you remember it, it will be factual to be like, oh yeah, I went there and I liked their food, right? It's factual, but you've lost the body reaction. 
Okay, that's normal memory because we obviously can't walk around having bodily reactions to every memory because that would be really hard to function in the world if any time we thought of something, we started to react to it bodily, right? That's what our brain does on normal memory. In a traumatic memory, however, you have that disturbing experience. It's visceral in your body, all the same. You go to sleep that night, you wake up, still visceral. You sleep for several more days or weeks, still visceral. Several months later, if the memory is triggered, it's still visceral. It's still a visceral reaction. Visceral meaning you're having a bodily, a somatic reaction to it. So the hallmark of trauma then is really related to that, which is, I always say, if you like follow me on social media, I'll talk about, you know, trauma is like somatic time travel. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. I'm talking about capital T trauma. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. If something triggers the experience, your body starts to behave as if it's a repeat, right? Whether or not that's a reasonable response doesn't matter. Your brain and your body are trying to protect you. They're responding as if it's repeat. So why that's so dangerous in the course of like professional work is because if you had a really bad outcome, then the next time you see a similar presentation, and that could be similar clinical presentation, but it could also be, they just kind of remind you of that patient. There's a sound playing on the radio that, that you may not, might not be in your conscious awareness and suddenly you're having an anxiety response. You're not really sure why. Um, you know, the, the smell of soap, the smell of candle, the smell of incense, the, the smell of a lotion, the, right? These things trigger and your body starts to behave in a somatic way as if it's recurring. And now your judgment and your interaction is, is going to be impacted because your brain is acting as if the past is present. And that is, I find the easiest way to describe to people, how do you know that you're having a trauma response? It is the, the way that when something triggers it, your body does not feel under your conscious control anymore. It doesn't matter. You can't talk yourself out of it, right? You might be able to, if you're very skilled, you've been taught very well, you might be able to deescalate once the trigger has happened. You might be able to do some breathing, splash some cold water, do some of those somatic things, and you might be able to bring it back down. But trauma over time is durable, meaning if it doesn't get reprocessed by the brain and the nervous system, every time it's triggered, you'll have a reaction. You get better at avoiding triggers right? So if you're in a car accident, you might like avoid doing things the way you did that day or avoid taking that route or avoid sell that car or, you know, you might get rid of your triggers, but if it were to be triggered, it would still be the same reaction. The issue is when you have professional trauma, how easy is it to avoid the triggers? You can't, you can't control the presentation of the patients in front of you. You can't for many people. Well, and if you do, it requires you to leave the profession. And there are unfortunately so, so many senior midwives leaving the profession because of burnout, which is really a manifestation of trauma. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I applaud that. I absolutely agree. I think when we're talking about things like staff burnout, what, what we, the elephant, the hidden elephant in the word burnout is actually trauma, untreated trauma. It's the accumulation of untreated trauma in the central nervous system. And then you That's see right. the beautiful people who honestly, the more empathetic and caring the provider, the more vulnerable they are to these effects. And so That's you right. see the beautiful caring professionals who really do this work for very, very noble, lovely reasons. And they're the professionals you want to stick around. And no surprise, they end up with chronic inflammatory conditions, which we know is the downstream effect of trauma on the body and the central nervous system, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they leave because of medical or they leave because of burnout or they leave because it's finally that one too many and they know it's PTSD, but it was a long time brewing, right? And it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. It does not have to be that way. Trauma is treatable. Trauma is preventable. If we understand the role of the central nervous system and that it has to do with memory processing, we can make changes that help us process these experiences so we can carry them. Right. Mm, but, mm, yeah. So I, important. I far there. Sorry, because you were talking about how no, many- you didn't go far. This, I mean, this is this is the work. You're right on the edge of what we're all feeling, and you're just naming some truths. But I wanted to take us like even to a less conscious place than that, because you know, um, I, I love midwives. I want you to know they're my favorite people on the whole planet. There's no more dedicated, compassionate hardworking, brilliant, adaptable, resilient, beautiful human on the planet than the people that stand at the threshold between life and death. Like it's, yeah, there's so much there. Yes. It's exceptional. They're my favorite people, but (laughs) I will say, or, and there's no buts here. uh, And those, those, that degree of work on that edge of existence 
sometimes the only way to keep doing that is to silence your own needs, wants, feelings. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you're able to do that work because a long time ago you silenced your inner voice. Um, You come from a history of trauma, which makes you compassionate and leveling and resilient and adaptable and all these things, but there's a root thing happening there. So I would say by and large, unless they've done a lot of personal work, most of the midwives that I encounter are not even aware that they're experiencing PTSD. They are not aware that they're in trauma. Mm -hmm. So some of the symptoms that I've seen in their being, in their body, in their habits, in their language, um, is that you, you typically have what, what sometimes you call a bad memory when you have a history of trauma, you can't recall all the things. And this is because that central nervous system and its infinite wisdom hides those things away to protect you from the pain that you would feel if it kept coming up. And so you have either avoidance techniques, you have disassociation habits, or you end up not having, being able to access memories because there really aren't memories yet. They're still stored in the prefrontal, you know, like they're still accessible as experience, not memory, but having a bad memory, not being able to recall events, finding times when you arrive home from a birth and you don't really know how you got home. You're driving on autopilot. You're zoning off into space. You, you can't focus in prenatal visits anymore. The things that used to bring you joy about the practice are not really doing it for you anymore. You kind of lost your taste for the profession. And you're thinking, why aren't I just a gardener? Why don't I open a restaurant? Why aren't I doing something different than this? To myself. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So these are all like, like, clues. They're like signs that there is something up for healing. What else would you add to this list? Yeah. I, so I understand that's such a great question. Here's, here's how I will talk to people about it. I will say to really simplify it, because if you're not sure people who have untreated trauma generally either get over-involved or under-involved. Mm, brilliant. So, I like that distinction. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. Cause hypervigilance is one of the symptoms of trauma. And basically hypervigilance is like the guard dog in your brain. That just is, is not doing a good job. It's like barking at everything, right? It thinks everything is a potential danger and it's on edge about everything. That's hypervigilance. And, and that can show up in a lot of ways, like an exaggerated startle response or insomnia often shows up in birth professionals because they have such disturbed circadian rhythms. They can't even sleep when they need sleep and they, and they're, and they don't have to be awake, you know? Um, so what often happens if you, you start this trajectory and I, I want to be careful in saying this because I don't want this to be discouraging, but I know that since I know that your audience is a lot of birth professionals, I think they'll recognize themselves in this. They start out filled with a, you know, a taste for the profession, as you said, like they're so excited about this and this is their life's passion and they're really happy to be doing it. They have some traumatic experiences. Often the story is initially they become over-involved as a response. They go into hypervigilance is often the first response, right? They're going to now like always be looking for that potential thing to happen again. They're going to prevent it and they're going to make better decisions next time. And they're going to like really just rake themselves over the coals on this topic to like never have that happen again. And they go into a state of like over-invested, over-involved, hypervigilance, that sort of like um, sometimes it can show up as codependency. It's that space where you're like trying to control the uncontrollable and you're on high alert, right? That's often mm-hmm. a first response. Now this can change for people who have a lifetime history of trauma, but this is like the average. At a certain point though, and this is what I talk about with my professionals classes, you like at a certain point, you can't sustain that anymore. You reach a, like a central nervous system sort of peak, like your body and your brain in some way are like, <laughs> We can't keep being vigilant all the time. It's too much. And so <clears throat> you either leave the profession or you leave yourself. Mm. Oh, say that again. That is tweetable. <laughs> so you reach a point at peak crisis. And at that point, you either leave the profession or you leave yourself. Mm. Now, Damn, that option. is a mic drop. Right? There's a third option, which is the thing I'm trying to, you don't have to choose those, but that's what we're presented with currently. Right. The third option is you heal the trauma, but that's not being discussed. So what people are often presented with is you leave the profession, you leave yourself. Well, most people put a lot of sacrifice into this and can't leave the profession or don't believe they should or feel obligated for whatever reason. So they leave themselves. And that's what you're describing, which is their brain goes, okay, shh, it's too much. Yeah. 
And the leaving yourself can look like a lot of different things. It can look like poor memory. It can look like numbness, physiological or emotional numbness. It can look like disconnect from patients, disconnect from birth. They lose their taste for it, right? But there, but somewhere there's this cord that goes because it's too much. And that is when you find that uh, midwives will start to express depression. They'll start to express disillusionments. They'll start to express um, like the colors just kind of gone out of things. Because the thing is, you can't pick and choose. You can't be like, okay, I'm going to show up to work this way. I'm going to show up to my life this way, right? It's an all or nothing thing. So if your body and brain go, you know what? You can't handle this volume. We're going to, that happens in your personal life too. And suddenly the color is just faded right? Because you just need to And, and unfortunately what oftentimes fades is, is, is marriages and friendships. Marriages, friendships, and we, hobbies, we, things we, love we have a huge, a very, very high divorce rate in midwifery. Yeah. Um, and we have a very high breastfeeding rate. You know, I love Louise or a breast cancer rate in midwives. And I, I love what Louise Hay says is, uh, you know, breasts have to do with nurturance and self-nurturance. And so if you forget to self-nurture breast cancers, physiologically, psychologically is sort of like an obvious outcome of that lack of self-nurturing. I, I really love what you just said. It's so clear. Um, I'd love to like layer it now, if you don't mind. I have a layer for you from um, the actual biological physiologic perspective. So this burnout, uh, this, this trauma response that we're kind of talking about um, in, in actual physiologic terms is called HPA axis dysfunction. So the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenal glands, the HPA axis is a, is a triad of hormonal glands that work together to regulate all kinds of things. And when you are in this trauma state, um, you experience a, uh, a dysfunction of the secretion of cortisol. So the first HPA axis stage one, you know, dysfunction um, is where, like you were saying, we have this elevated um, response, this hypervigilance that also corresponds to your cortisol being quite high. Then as if we don't address it and we don't treat it, then, um, then it starts to go into wonk, crazy, up, down, up, down. Um, and this is true with your cortisol as well. So normal cortisol response should be that right after you wake within seconds after waking in the morning, it rises at its highest point and then it slowly falls throughout the day until it's really low and you fall asleep naturally because you know, you're calmed down by the end of the day. Midwives don't have normal days like that. We're on call all the time. We're up in the middle of the night. So basically 100% of midwives probably are in stage one HPA access dysfunction unless they work in a call schedule. I would agree with that. The, the- yeah. Because even if they had perfectly smooth birds and never had a single traumatic experience, waking up at 3 a.m. It creates cortisol. Yes. Exactly. So that injury is probably stage one, unless they work a set call schedule or they have excellent backup or they have, you know, some kind of situation where they are not on call 24 seven. They're not waking up at three in the morning all the time. It's a rare occurrence. Yeah. So then, then they're going to probably inside of them can actually downregulate and they can actually exhale and release. Exactly. Yep. That's rarely happening, especially in community-based birth, mm-hmm. hospital-based provider, hospital-based midwives oftentimes do work call shifts. They're up all night, but they're only up all night, two nights a week. Every other night of the week, they can turn their phone off. So unless you have that kind of situation, probably all midwives have stage one where they have elevated cortisol response um, and they have a hypervigilance um, and they're running around like revving kind of high. Then the next stage, stage two, is when your cortisol sometimes is explosive and sometimes is non-existent. And so that's where you're like drinking coffee all afternoon and you're feeling like you don't have any pep Red Bulls come into midwifery care at that point and Diet Coke and smoking cigarette, like all the, all the, the habits and the, the coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that we develop. Um, even matcha tea in the afternoon is this like, I need a hit of something. I don't have enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be uh, stage two HPA access dysfunction after we've been on the roller coaster for quite a few years. The third stage to get fatigued, that process is starting to get fatigued at that point. Right. So then it starts to not quite work for you. 
the actual organs that sustain the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system are, are no longer completely functional. It's in this dysfunction. So it's wave-like instead of normally sloping like it should be when we chart the hormones. Then the third phase um, is, is really quite critical. Um, some people have called this adrenal fatigue, but that's not quite enough of a description for how bad this is. This is when your adrenals are basically failing. They have been stimulated so much. They have been required to overproduce so much that they fail in the same way that if you consume sugar so much, eventually your pancreas does not secrete insulin. And then we develop type two diabetes. So the, the adrenal uh, glands, when they've been pushed and pushed and pushed in connection with the hypothalamus and the pituitary, because they're all connected, then they stop producing cortisol. And so if you test this, there's barely a rise when you wake in the morning and it's just basically flatline. And you, you can see this in affect, you can see this in mood, you can see this in, in interest in the job. You can see this if you test the hormones, like it's actually kind of miraculous that it goes together so well. You can see these differences physiologically as well as psychologically. And I'll add that one of the things I see in this stage often is just like chronic pain becomes a massive issue. Yes. Chronic pain is a huge issue. With the insomnia mixed with the sort of, you know, the crapping out of the adrenals and everything else that often that's when the chronic pain and or autoimmune slash inflammatory stuff just all of, and that's where they, they leave the profession with this, um, like I've got a medical crisis, which is accurate. They do. Yep. But it's not a mystery how it got there. That's right. right. That's right. And I think, you know, when we, like all of us have medical, you know, midwifery clinical brains, like who are listening. And when you go back to your basic clinical training, inflammation okay. happens because of injury. Yes. Yep. So this is an injury. And I think that is the part that I think midwives have not connected yet. You know, it's like, and and I'd also like to say, this is apropos the same kind of word medicine where we shift our meaning and our, our, how we pay attention to how the connotation of words is so powerful. So one of the things is like, I also have PTSD and instead of using the word PTSD, I like to, it's like post-traumatic stress disorder, I like to call post-traumatic stress response mm-hmm. or a post-traumatic stress injury, because we really need to address what's happening here. I, I don't have a disorder. Mm-hmm. I have a reaction to unhealed trauma. I have a response, right. which is actually perfectly appropriate right. given what I've lived through. Well, yeah. To and your so, point, like yeah. if you had a blood force trauma to your arm and your arm broke, you wouldn't call it a, it would, a disorder. That's right. <laughs> It's an injury. It's an injury. And so we can see this in the body, both from a functional medicine perspective around the actual lab results. We can see it in the affect and and the mental health of somebody. And we can see it in how they interact with the world in their profession. So um, they they first go through like a hypervigilant, a hyperprotective stance. Mm -hmm. And then when they cannot protect themselves from the onslaught of trauma, they give up, they go into a depressive state. Um, and that shows up in the labs. It shows up in the, in all the areas. So this third phase is what is so dangerous because at that point, the injury is so great. The only way that the body can protect itself is to inflame to such a point that it becomes immobile. And this is what the body does for a break. If you break your arm, it will, if you don't set it right in that first few hours, it will swell to the point that you cause further injury trying to fix it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and this is the same way with mental injuries. So when we have a mental, emotional, spiritual injury, if we don't deal with it right away, like you're saying, like I've seen, the swelling becomes extreme and it's swollen in a way it shouldn't stay. And it takes a lot to put it back. That's when those reconstructive surgeries are needed, right? And this is true for trauma. It's still feel fixable. It's still healable. There's still amazing things we can do even decades after trauma, but gosh, is it easier if it can happen? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. It's it's so much better to intervene at the trajectory point, right? Yeah. If you can intervene before the brain has decided exactly how it's going to process this experience and help that memory to be processed more like a regular memory, you can change the course of healing. Yeah. You can. So one of the, uh, thank you for that. That was brilliant. Thank you for that. One of the most important things 
that I do with the midwives that I work with. And again, I am not a therapist. I want to be very clear about that. I just have done a lot of self-study. Um, what I do with uh, a lot of the midwives uh, centers around a, um, uh, I, would, I would call like a real pattern in the profession. And uh, for lack of more technical terms, and correct me because I want your advice here and your uh, input, um, there seems to be a, a pattern, and I would go even beyond a pattern, it would be almost epidemic proportions of midwives who have codependency te uh, tendencies. Um, and the way that I understand codependency is that it is a, uh, a betrayal of self in order to be liked, appreciated, seen, or acknowledged by someone else. Would you agree with that definition? I like that definition a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, a, I've heard a lot of good ones. I think that's a good one. Um, I, I tend to, I don't think this is nearly as eloquent. I'll tell people it's sort of like, uh, codependency at its core is taking responsibility for things that aren't yours. Ooh, that's a good one. Right? Ooh, um, yeah. But how do you get to that place? You usually get trained, right? You get trained in some way. Like we are, we are adaptable species. And so we are also pain avoidant species. So you have enough pain. You're, you just naturally grow away and around that pain. Okay. So the tendency to self forget and serve others is a trained behavior. Children are not that way. Watch a two-year-old. They have absolutely no they care. Themselves. No, they're no, not. They do yeah. not. They do not forget themselves. They are entirely self-focused and they're very good at their own needs. They will throw fits in the middle of a grocery store to get what they need, right? So how do we go from that place to this place where we actually ignore our own needs? I think it's training. Yeah. And, yeah. Tell me more. Go ahead. So I think there's a couple things happening here. And I'm, I, I, once again, I just think it's so great that you're talking about this. I absolutely have said this. Um, I don't know that I've ever said this publicly. I do think that therapists and midwives and a few other professions, the joke that I made with my students is that we're all professional codependents. <laughs> <laughs> we just found a way to make it our career. <laughs> oh, I want to be a recovering codependent. Exactly. It's a, joke. Yeah. it's a joke, everybody. It's a joke. Yeah. But a joke with some truth to it, right? Like, we yeah. Got, yeah. honestly, there's a self-selection process. Listen, you don't choose to be a midwife for the glamour or the glory or the, you know, right? Why do people choose? Being a midwife is very challenging work. And frankly, it's actually the hardest profession on the planet. Really. If you do the math, you don't get paid nearly hardest. enough for the hours, yeah. the physical toll that it's taking on you and your yeah. family and the missed holidays and the everything else. Like you don't get paid nearly enough. So already who's drawn to it are people who are not motivated mm. by admiration, money, power, right? Mm. Just mm. like if you were, if you were motivated by those things, you'd become a different thing. So it's, it selects for people who are already in a space where what motivates them more than anything is to help others, mm, right? Mm, that's like, mm, that's mm, a certain mm. part of the population that's motivated more than anything else to help. And others. when it's balanced, it can be incredibly altruistic and, and beautiful, beautiful, but there's a huge people, degree that are not balanced. Are willing to help others and sacrifice to help others. Like these are, in my opinion, like the best among us. These are the people you want in a, in a society. These are, these are the this is good, right? This yeah. is goodness at its core. And I think that's so important to say because in the conversation on codependency, because codependency first came out of like the addiction model of understanding, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it can sometimes mm -hmm. be tinged with shame. It can sometimes be tinged with like really heavy labels. I know that's not how you mean it, but people can hear yes. it that way, right? If their yes. exposure to it has been through 12 step programs or through the addiction model, it can carry a great deal of finger wagging and bad, bad, bad. Yeah. I think we have to back yeah. up and think. Codependency at its core is just a love bug person who just wants to help everybody around them. And what a beautiful soul and spirit that is. At its core, it is goodness and it is love and it is beauty. The issue is where codependency gets out of balance is when the love for the other exceeds the love for self. Mm. Right? Mm. And mm. so that is where the tipping point has to occur. And why I believe that that work, that recovery work is protective, if we go back to trauma, <clears throat> is codependency, you already try to take responsibility for things that aren't yours. Then you add trauma, then you add hypervigilance, where now you're just running around with the cape on, like, I'm going to save all the days of everybody's day, right? 
it's totally not sustainable. You can't control those outcomes for everybody despite your best efforts. And so going through the process of really like learning to balance love for others with love for self so that you have mm. internal strength and fortitude with external strength and fortitude so that they're balanced on either side of it is actually going to be protective with trauma as well. Because when you have so those bad important. outcomes, you're going to be able to be like, you know what, I can grieve that. That was really hard, but I don't need to go into self-blame or shame or hypervigilance. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, so you just really hit the nail on the head there. And I, I guess I just kind of, I want to go into my like mentor mode for a second. And I want to talk to our audience really quickly. And I just want to say, um, we have to, as a profession, revolutionize the concept that self-care is selfish. We have to destroy that idea. Self-care is actually survival. Like if you are taking care of yourself, you can't take care of others. We hear it every time we fly anywhere. You put the oxygen mask on yourself first, and then you help others. And we have to model this and we have to do this in the profession. Well, we're going to keep losing some of the best and the brightest of our profession. Mm -hmm, So if you feel any internal shame, drama, trauma about the word self-care, about the idea that you would love yourself as much as you love your clients, Mm -hmm. you probably have trauma work to do. Like that's a sign right there. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then that's the thing that Oftentimes when I'm working one-on-one with birth professionals, I, they, they will bristle at this whole thing. Like, yeah. it feels like, um, well, and honestly, I, in part, I blame my profession. I blame, you know, every hospital institution who had like a self-care seminar, because it just feels like blame. And it just feels like one more thing on your list that you're just not doing right. And it's very painful. Um, and so there's a lot of bristling at that idea. And so we have to really unpack it and say, okay, like, let's drop all the ways that self-care has been preached at us and like thrust upon us. And instead, let's just talk about it. Like if you were your own patient or client, what would you tell yourself to do? Mm. Start with that. Because I know you have a patient or client and tell them to to keep doing this. Yes. You haven't slept enough. You're dehydrated. Nobody knows when you peed last. You haven't, we don't even know if you've had more than three hours of sleep this week. Like, Oh yeah, you're fine. Keep going. No, so push through. You would never tell your patient or client to push through. You would say, "Oh, you'd say go to bed, water, immediately nap, yes. immediately take a walk." Yes. Yeah. Yes. You would do all the things. That's a really good reminder. I do that with with the birthing people I take care of, the mamas I take care of. Like, if your newborn baby was here, you wouldn't make them wait to eat. You wouldn't make them wait to change their diaper. You know, treat yourself like the baby already. Yeah. Whoever you do care about, use it as leverage to learn how to care for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we can get into that, especially if you're, um, you know, the caretaker type. You can often have clearer vision when you imagine yourself as someone you're caring for. Like sometimes this is how parenting can be such an opportunity for growth because you will sometimes this, this codependency, like you will take care of your child in a way that you will ignore inside yourself. And it's a moment of revelation to realize that that child you're caring for also exists in you. Yeah. Right. And while yes, we're adults and children are children. It doesn't look the same, but the chi- but that the need is still in there. Yes. And, and also I always say more. that's, that small person is watching you ignore yourself. So it, you actually raise stronger, competent, more individual, more individualized, conscious humans when they get to witness whole conscious humans parenting them. And I would say the same is true in midwifery. You know, there's this mentorship in midwifery that is still luckily a part of our profession where we learn from mentor, from older mentors, right? And if those older mentors are not modeling self-care, what are we doing to the next generation? So, um, I, I just, I love this conversation. This is the juice. This is the meat. This is right where I am at every day. I love that you're doing this. I like could talk to you for another hour, I think, sure. but um, to kind of wrap up, let's, let's do a couple things. Um, first of all, if folks uh, want to refer clients to you, how do they get them to you? Yes. Yeah, so the name of my company is Dancy Perinatal. So it's D-A-N-C-Y. They can go to the website and see all of the resources we have for both professionals and for patients. 
Great. So we'll link the website below. So um, Dancy, a perinatal for client referrals. And how about if they personally wanted to work with you? So that will also be on the same website. They'll have the option to say, I'm a professional or I'm looking for patient resources and it will guide them from there. Awesome. Excellent. Alrighty. Let's give, let's wrap up with a few little self-care tips like we're always talking about. So what's your favorite recommendation for folks that are in the trenches doing this work up at 3 a.m. and they need to remember self-care so that things don't get worse until they find a therapist and can make them better? What do you recommend that they do? Okay, so great. This has obviously got a big answer. Like I have a lot of suggestions, but I'm going to narrow it down (laughs) to just a few. Uh, The first thing is most really effective trauma therapy techniques have one thing in common, and that is what we call bilateral stimulus. And by bilateral, I mean alternating sides, right, left, right, left. Um, There's some overlap we theorize with REM sleep and how the eye movement goes right, left, right, left. But we know that right, left, right, left is super important for the processing of memories, emotions, and experiences. So if you're in a spot where First of all, I want you to, after something difficult, I want you to sleep as soon as you possibly can. Even if you have to medicate to sleep, I want you to sleep. Sleep is, honestly, some of the theorists have said they think PTSD should be reclassified as a sleep disorder instead of an anxiety disorder because it's so closely correlated with with disturbed sleep. So if you can, but I say that to birth professionals, they like want to punch me. So if you can sleep, please sleep, sleep deeply, sleep hard, cancel everything. Just really lean in. If you cannot, or if you're still in the middle of a shift, or if you're still in the middle of the birth and you know that you're taking on trauma, you can feel that your nervous system's like, oh, this is bad. Um, then bilateral is a good stop here. And so here's stuff that's bilateral. Walking is bilateral. Swimming is bilateral. Drumming is bilateral. Also favorite tip, headphones. You can Google free bilateral music. You can find it all over the internet and just, you can get it on any place you stream music also YouTube, free bilateral music, where the music alternates right, left, right, left. You listen to it, and I will do this after a birth. I will listen to it in my headphones on the drive home to help begin the process of processing the experience to try to clear that backlog for my brain. Um, Also, you can do it through tapping. So let's say you're sitting, let's say you're sitting, you know, labor sitting. You can tap on your knees. You can tap your feet where no one's even noticing, right, left, right, left. Anything bilateral is a super good crisis care tool, make sure you have your favorite technique. And even though you feel kind of silly, just like make yourself do it for a few minutes after a difficult experience and notice the difference, right? So that's one. Yes. Um, Obviously sleep's the other one. The third one is, um, I think it's important to underscore the importance of hydration and food because in this, um, the, the nervous system and the decisions between like the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, digestion and food and water are, are like a contradictory signal to a stress signal. Mm, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. And actually I want to jump into like, this is such a good idea and it triggers something in me. So I just want to say this really quickly. Yeah. Um, that we always heard of the stress response, the adrenaline response as fight or flight, but there's actually two more that's freeze and fawn. So this 4F response that we get to adrenaline puts everything on hypervigilant, puts everything on alert, puts everything in that place that we all know of as adrenaline. And exactly what you're saying, rest and digest is the other side. And so uh, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, So if you imagine like a car, there's the gas and the brakes, right? So fight, flight, it's actually, what we always say is fight, flight, faint, freeze, or fawn. Okay, great. So five now. Okay, I think there's a sixth one that I'm forgetting. Doesn't matter. Same idea. That's the gas, right? Let's push, go, go, go. The brakes, because your body works in both. The brakes is the rest and digest. They also, some people will joke and call it breed and feed because it has sexual response as well, but that's less helpful. So rest and digest. So what I, what I encourage people to do, if, if for no other reason, if this is the excuse you need in order to do that self-loving practice, making sure that you are nourished and hydrated, literally on a biochemical neurological level signals to your body. I must not be under threat because I wouldn't be eating and drinking if I were under threat. That's right. Right. And so we can trick our brains into down-regulating 
just mm -hmm. by the simple act of nourishment. And when we are mm -hmm. stressed, the first thing we want to do is skip all that and ignore all that, right? Mm -hmm. But then it, it becomes mm -hmm. a, a feedback loop. So just sips of warm tea, just bites, nibbles if you're feeling overwhelmed, nibbles of something you enjoy that feels good and nourishing to you can begin the process of down-regulating. So if you combine all these, like sleep as soon as you can, bilateral, eat and drink, either during or right after a difficult birth, you're already starting the reparative process. Yeah, as opposed to, I'm gonna drink a bunch of stimulant, coffee, tea, Red Bull, I'm gonna eat garbage out of a vending machine, I'm gonna stay up for my second night in a row. Through. I'm gonna push through and push and push, yep. That's right. That yeah. is a great way to set the trauma so that it comes back again and again and again. See, this is, this yeah. is totally unscientific, but I think of trauma as like a log jam, right? It's like the yeah. experience was too big to process. So you've got to give your body what it needs because this one's a big one and it needs yeah. a lot of support. So if you keep pushing through and ignore those signals, you are adding to the log jam. You are making it more likely that it will become PTSD later. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. so clear. So midwives, stop, drop, sleep, and eat. I don't know. We got to come up with some kind oh, of term. Stop, stop, <laughs> take, take a pause so it doesn't become a big T trauma. Take care of yourselves. As I always say, we like need we you need you around. desperately. Yes, we need yeah. you desperately. So my little tagline has always been take as good a care of yourself as you take care of your clients. Like at the bare minimum, you got to take care of yourselves. Krista, it's been an incredible pleasure chatting with you. You are a wealth of knowledge, a tremendous resource for our community. I hope that we can get you at the Midwifery Wisdom Experience this fall so people can meet you in person. And I just thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. It has been fun. Yeah.